This is More Than Therapy Podcast. More Than Therapy. This is More Than Therapy. More Than Therapy Podcast. This is More Than Therapy. More Than Therapy Podcast. This is More Than Therapy Podcast. Welcome today for a very special episode. And I know the audience is always saying, oh, you already say that. Okay, whatever. Today we have Dr. Michael Alston, who's a very interesting type of person in the mental health field. He does a job. He does a, his career is based on something that I wish I had in my life good 20 years ago. Um, and I just want him to introduce himself to the listening and watching audience as it pertains to what he brings to the world in mental health from a totally different perspective than we've ever had on the Modern Therapy Podcast. Thanks, Blue. I, I like to mix it up, as you know. I like to bring together what we can learn about ourselves from not only psychology, but from music, from mm-hmm. films, from literature, from pop culture, from high art, from everything, we, how we can mash it up. So I think, you know, that's that's what I think we're going to have fun with today, uh, jamming together on all these different things. And most people don't think of these things as interconnected. And yet as therapists, we know that they are. And that's what gives, you know, life its kind of magic, its kind of enjoyment. And, I, you know, I was thinking about, like, how beautiful your intro tune was to the podcast. And, like, I'm like if that's what therapy is about, man, then I want to do more of it. <laughs> there you go. I love it. I love it. I love it. I remember when I was in school, you know, it was just so, for lack of better terminology, dry. <laughs> like, is this what therapy has to look like for the clients that I work with? And I knew that the answer was no. As long as I could interfuse it with evidence-based, I pretty much can do whatever I needed to do to reach the client. And that seems, when I, from what I read about you, from what I know about you, is what you do. Our typical learning of therapy doesn't say use anything outside of the CBT or the DBT or the motivational interviewing or anything like that. They don't think that the person is a holistic being, that their spirit is part of their body, is part of their mind, the music, their culture, the food. And, you know, so some people can use music to get to the core essence of what's going on with them or how they relate to the world. I know a guy who does cinema, cinema therapy, that he uses movies and clips from movies to bring out the the essence of that person's pain so they can deal with the trauma that they're dealing with. But you use music. Music. Like I said before, music, I have a soundtrack in my life that is embedded in music. I love, love music. Not only because I used to be an artist and I still am to some degree, but just that I can find a period of my life that totally relates to any period of life, whether it's pain, whether it's love, whether it's joy, whether it's hurt. Dr. Alsi, you do this for a living. Tell me more. I love what you said there because, you know, even listening to you, Blue Talk, it's like you see the range in the tone that when you're talking about your story, that when we're talking about our stories, you can hear different chord changes happen. Mm-hmm. You can hear the sadness. You can hear the pride. You can hear the anger. 
And a good therapist is tracking that with you and helping you get some feedback, almost like you're going into the studio and saying, what are you hearing? Like, how does, play that back to me so that we can mix it better, you know, so that we can bring out different layers in what's going on in the song and sometimes even mash up different genres because, you know, sometimes you don't have enough of this or you have too much of that. And I love what you said earlier, too, about, you know, we are trained as therapists to know evidence-based. And, and, and I think of that as learning about all the different styles of music, you know, psychologically speaking, all the different kind of ways of approaching this stuff. And, you know, we look at the masters. We look at Freud. We look at Rogers. We look at Beck. We look at Linehan. We look at Stephen Hayes. We look at all these different folks. And then we try to figure out, like, how do we bring that together with a unique individual and try to figure out what kind of piece they need right now? Right. Indeed. And, and really, I think we, we, as you know, what's great about being a therapist as being really connected to somebody in conversation, just like a musician is we're deep listeners, but we're also playing back in a way of varying something that we hear to add a new tonality to it. So it's mm -hmm. almost like a good jazz musician hears something and then they, they give the lick back, but they add a little something else to see what we can do with it together. And that's where the collaboration happens. And so I like yeah. to think of therapy more as an interesting collaboration. Think of it as something where we're kind of figuring something and creating something new together. And both therapist and client are artists in that mix. So yeah. it's the music is also the art because the art, the form is story. It's a, there's a poetry to it. That's why I love when you were talking, I was following the range of where you were taking us and you were taking us like, like a symphony, like a poem and moving us to different territory. And I think what therapy does when it's doing its job, what's more than therapy is that it's expanding the range of what we can express and what we can get to know about ourselves in the world. Indeed, indeed. Man, you spoke to my soul with that. Mm, mm, mm. You are preaching today, Dr. Alshon. <laughs> <laughs> if only I met you 20, 30, shoot. At my conception. <laughs> I might not even be a therapist today. I might be doing my, life, my life's work with music. <laughs> what inspired you? I know that your upbringing was a big influence on where you are today. So tell me about your, your childhood and the the eclectic mix of your life that brought you to this point today, please, please. A lot of people don't realize that our core comes from our upbringing. Like, I wouldn't be a therapist today if I didn't experience what I experienced in my childhood, whether it's good or bad. And of course, everyone who knows my story knows it was bad. Um, but I also knew the values that was instilled in me by my parents. I also know the core of you are only as strong or only as good as the five people closest to you and using that mantra of Ubuntu to build up the people around me so they can be better. Therefore, yeah. that I will be influenced by them because they are now empowered to be better. I say all that to say this. How was you molded into the doctor that you are today, especially as it relates to music? I read some things, but I want the people to know it from your own work. Yeah, it's kind of funny, you know, it's interesting because I've, I've thought that myself. I didn't think I was going to go into this field and it came back to me. And um, it turns out that my mother was a social worker 
but she was a social worker with an interesting sensibility because she loved literature. She loved talking. She loved spirituality. She would, she would infuse spirituality into her work as well and, and find a way of connecting the different kind of themes of all different religions into things. Um, but above all, there was a sensitivity and perceptiveness that she, she, she always was teaching me to be curious about how people work and why they work the way that they do, but also to be empathic, like to think about what it might be like in that situation. And I felt that she showed me what that was like with how she treated me. And I always felt that that was a special gift that, that she had. And I felt it imbued the world with a sort of wonder. You know, this this wonder. And I think wonder has like two different sides to it. Wonder is like, oh, my God, there can be such interesting, beautiful, awesome things. And wonder, like, I wonder what more there is to learn. And I think wonder is this sort of magic thread that went through my early life of saying, if you have somebody who's willing to wonder with you, that's all that you need. Even like you said, Blue, like if you don't have all the best experiences, because I have certain experiences too that were, were rather challenging. But if you have somebody who can help you to wonder and, and dream again with, then it can make all the difference in the world. And that's what I think is, is the gift of therapy itself, because we provide that witnessing, we provide that wondering together. But it's in the warmth of a relationship that is like, I see the best in you and I can be with the worst of you, with the same amount of love. Indeed, indeed. Thank you for that perspective and that that's showing us that, you know, as parents, it's very important for us to instill the right values in our children. Literature is, I think, one of the best gifts, you know what I'm saying, the, the art of reading, the love of reading, as now we're so into our phones and our technology, the books, fall to the wayside. And I want people to remember this. This is just a slight segue off topic. What they ban is what you're supposed to read. So read banned books. If they ban it, that means they didn't want you to know. All right, back on topic. Dr. Allison, yes. <laughs> and, and you know what? The same is the same for the psyche as well. I think that's a really good point. Because what we ban from ourselves, what we marginalize in ourselves, you know, whether it was we grew up in a family or a culture which said it wasn't okay to have that deep sadness or anger or whatever feeling or experience we have, that bans a part of us, which is an alive part of us. And we need that to have the full range, to have our creativity. And that means also having the tough stuff. But see, the tough stuff becomes beautiful when it's made real with a capital R, right? That's where soul making happens. And psychology is the study of the soul. And so it takes a certain generosity, I think, to be able to open oneself to that territory. And I think that is a real gift. And so I agree with you wholeheartedly on those books. Books help us deepen into that interior world and not forget that nothing that is human should be banished. Indeed. Indeed. You work with a very special population. Well, not just with that population, but you have a very special population that you work with and guide them. Please tell us more about that. It's funny. I, 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 I fell into this gig uh, working at Manhattan School of Music where I work with these high-level musicians uh, in 
classical classical pianists and classical violinists and um, vocalists and jazz artists and musical theater folks. And um, it's really, really interesting because you're working with people who have this like Olympic level high achieving training and and yet also struggle from all the things that every every non-artist struggles from as well. And the other thing that's really funny is that, you know, artists don't think that they have a personal creativity. They think their creativity only comes in their artistic sphere, which is which is so not right. And non-artists, I think, don't feel that they have an artistic side, even though in the personal realm, there's so much room for creativity and artistry. And so I think it's been really interesting to, to work in this mix where I've worked in college counseling with folks who were in liberal arts colleges and non-musical schools and now in the conservatory and to see how we all can learn how to engage our personal creativity, whether we're an artist or not. Pablo Picasso said, um, we are all born artists. The problem is that we forget once we grow up. Indeed, indeed. I know you can't really say your client base, but have you ever met someone really famous? You know, I I haven't met anyone real famous, but you know, the funny thing is, is that they work with people who are mm -hmm. very famous and all the time they say things that we both are like, can you believe you just said that? Like, I just was talking to someone today and they're like, yeah, I played this gig at Birdland uh, this week or... Um, yeah, we played at Carnegie Hall last week, a as if they're talking about, you know, just the weather report. Mm -hmm. And and it, it, it astounds me, and I stop them to just say, hey, did you hear what you just said? <laughs> you know? Right, right. I mean, that's like, you know, I used to play basketball. Somebody just haphazardly just saying something, oh, you know, yeah, we were at playing a little hoops at, you know, Madison Square, and I'm like, what? <laughs> Exactly. That's my dream. <laughs> exactly. And, and, and then the thing to think that, you know, what's funny about it, Blue, too, is that, that some of these folks who have all these wondrously grand experiences can feel just as humble and small as any of us who don't have any of that quote unquote cred, you know, but it doesn't matter because it turns out we're all the same. And that's what I love about it. And what's interesting to me, too, is I work with a lot of international students. So I work with students from China and Russia and Eastern Europe. And one of the things I love is that even with students who don't, we don't have our native language in common, all the emotions, all of the stuff that we struggle with is the same. And it just, it, it, it transcends language, it transcends culture. We, we, we get to know the, the particular way in which it gets shown, but underneath all the clothes, we're all the same. And, and when it comes to the psyche, we are all really much more, more the same than otherwise. We are, as, one, as one psychologist, Harry Stack Sullivan said, we are all more simply human than otherwise. Indeed, indeed, indeed. The things that you treat, the things that you address in therapy, what type of topics, what type of themes come to the forefront? Like what kind of things do people want to work on or struggle with when they come to you? Yeah, the biggest one, and I think this is a cultural issue, is perfectionism. 
especially at that level. But I think it's because we, as a culture, I mean, I think we're getting better at it with the Brene Browns out there, you know, teaching us to have the gifts of our imperfections. And, and you know, we're, we're seeing people like um, Daniel Pink, who's written books on kind of leaning into our negative emotions. Like he has a book right now called The Power of Regret. It's so interesting to look at some of these things that we said, no, no, you shouldn't really think about those things or talk about those things. It turns out by actually leaning into the dissonance, embracing the dissonance, we actually get through it a lot faster and we actually, we actually become more fulfilled. So perfectionism is an interesting thing because so many young adults, especially, and even adults really struggle with it because we objectify ourselves, man. We make it seem as if we are just an object to be constantly measured and, and constantly as if we're commodifying ourselves. And it's like we forget like that we're a human being, not a human doing. And it's so rampant, I think, out there that it almost takes a good deal of unlearning. Because I think in a lot of ways where all of us are sort of conditioned to know ourselves through a sort of conditional love. And perfectionism really at the root of it is a fear that you're unlovable unless you do this or that. Indeed, indeed. I don't know if they call millennials, but twenty years, twenty to twenties and thirties is your like your sweet spot for therapy. Yeah, millennials and Gen Zs, I've or uh, Gen Zs, I've heard them called as well, and I can't tell where the cutoff is because the generation right. changes so quickly these days. Because I'm an Xennial, I'm like right on the fringe of Gen X and millennials. Oh, okay, okay, and I'm a millennial, so I dig. I can dig what you're saying. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that is a very difficult age. Um, I think it's more difficult in this time than it was in previous times based on, I guess, I, want, I don't know why we always want to point at social media, but that's what I want to point it at because I know my upbringing wasn't influenced by social media. Social media didn't come into effect until... Damn, it, didn't, it didn't really come into effect until the mid-2000s, mid <laughs> right? Right, right, right. So I was well-grown, you know what I'm saying? I was well into my career before it became started becoming mainstream. I remember when Facebook came to market, I was still young when Facebook came out. But I was like, oh, that's for college kids. I wasn't in college yet. I was like, ah, who cares? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I but think now everybody has to have some linkage to it. It's almost like it, it, it is a very influential and very parts of their lives. I went on vacation recently. And I noticed that all the people who was experiencing what I was experiencing really wasn't experiencing it because they were in their phones trying to catch it. I made a, mm. I made, it was purposeful for me to leave my phone back because I didn't want to get caught up in capturing the moment with the phone versus capturing the moment with just being in the moment. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's an interesting mixed blessing, right? So I think any new technology brings both progress and regression. And I think, you know, the thing with social media that you're right is that it makes people, again, more commodified in a way. Like everybody's like thinking about how they market and position themselves. And yet there are other real perks to it. Like I see openings where people who can find their niche a lot easier because there are no gatekeepers, you know, like and, and there's a sense of more openness there's also more openness about mental health, which is great. Like, it's really interesting to see these millennial influencers who are putting stuff about, you know, tips on how to take care of yourself and, you know, your mental health and, and really like self-compassionate, really affirming things, which is stuff that I, I didn't see when we were growing up as much. 
And so I think, you know, it's really interesting to kind of take, take the combination of stuff. Um, but, but certainly it, it really is, it's also really challenging to figure out how to use all this stuff because I think the greatest technology is right in here mm. and right up here and, and figuring out how to link those up is a lifelong art. And so when you have these other tools, they can really distort or exaggerate things and confuse things as well. And that's why I think, you know, what are the reasons I think uh, not only therapy is so great. I think one of the reasons why it's so important that we do things like this is to teach us how to get connected to our inner technology to make sure that we stay connected on a sort of psychological, even soul level with that and why it's so important. That's why I think the arts are so important because the arts always bring us back to that human foundation, whether it's music, whether it's literature, whether it's painting, any of those arts bring us back to coming back to bringing the head and heart together. Indeed, indeed, indeed. Music and therapy, fusion, meeting them in the middle. I was just talking to a client the other day. She works with dementia, dementia clients. And we was talking about you know, the difficulty she was having, you know, regarding some of their behaviors. And I was telling her, you have to connect them to their past. That's the only, that's the thing that that links them. That's the more most core thing to their being is, is their past, whether it's sense or food or music or a television show the easiest thing to do is to relate it to a music time period as that's more readily available via youtube spotify pandora etc she tried it and she saw a remarkable change in the behaviors and some of her clients just based on what she thought their core age would be regarding when they would really be into music and understand music so let's say like they were 70 years old and she'll go back to like 1940 music something like that yeah. Room, she saw an immediate change in their attitudes, their behaviors, their aggressiveness, and even th those that were not even having speech that much. Yeah. Started it's to be more vocal and verbal. I remember I once had a client who I was working with who was in an assisted living who had dementia. And she was quite lovely, but she really would mostly repeat things. And one day I, I knew that she liked music and there was a piano. And I just said, I, I want to play you a little something. I know that you like Chopin. And so I played her a Chopin Nocturne, a little bit of it. And the delight and joy that came over her eyes and the fluidity of her words talking about it. It, it, it was like something got reawakened in her. And I think, you know, Oliver Sacks, the great neurologist, used to talk a lot about this in his books, you know, Awakenings and, and all these wonderful books that he wrote, that, that, that we're, we're always trying to connect to that, that center. And, and, you know, I think the other thing is that when we can't find that center, it's our job to figure out how to get closer to it. And it doesn't matter who it is, whether it's someone with dementia, whether it's someone who's struggling with anxiety or depression, or someone who has quote-unquote behavioral problems there's probably some good reasons for those and we want to find our access points and also to see where we can find the spirit because the spirit is sort of like spirit comes from like that word of like the spirit is the breath of god in the old testament right which is what animates us and we want to find a way to connect to that and sometimes the spirit is in joy and sometimes the spirit is in sorrow 
but it is our job to be of service to connect to that spirit. I have another topic for you, which we were talking about this, about, you know, banned books and marginalizing it. I think, you know, one of the other things that I think has been a really important trend within psychology and also our culture is, is really thinking about celebrating diversity and, and, and encouraging sort of inclusivity in the culture. And I think one of the really important things about that is mirroring that with our inner work of, of getting to know the full diversity inside of us, the full cast of characters and, and the wide and sweeping, wonderful mix of diversity that we all have within. And especially to get to know those sides that we marginalize or exile or push away, often for very good reasons, sometimes because those sides have not been given the time of day or, or airtime at the table. And, and I think really our work, the more we work on cultivating and embracing that diversity within, we do great work in helping the diversity on the outside. Because the more we can love the fullness of ourselves and our diversity, the more we can love our brothers and sisters with their diversity. Indeed. If you could have your music be the soundtrack to any movie, if I say like you were a musician, not saying you're not, I'm sure you are, mm-hmm. you have to be in order to do what you do in some aspect, I stop. <laughs> if you could do a soundtrack to a movie, what what movie resonates with you that you would love to do the score for? Even if it's a score that's already in existence, you know what I'm saying? You would just love to do that one. Or even just put your own mix on it. Do your own thing regarding it. I'll give you an example. Yeah. Avatar, one of my favorite movies. I love this the soundscape for it. I thought they did a remarkable job. I believe it's award-winning, if I'm not mistaken. Hmm. I would love to have been a part of that creation because though you don't really hear a lot about Avatar now, they have slated to have two more um, um, sequels to come out. So it's going to start resonating again. I think they waited way too long, but that's another story. Um, <laughs> but I think that, that essence of that story, what the, it spoke about, you know, the essence of what it meant to make that movie and what it was trying to tell you outside of the entertainment of it, resonated so much with my personal being as a person. I would have loved to have done the soundtrack for that because I do believe the music assisted with that understanding of what that that love was, of that understanding of the connectedness of that. We're all interconnected in the universe through these little strings of waves and all these things. And And a lot of that connection is the waves of music. It's amazing. You know, I was, as you were talking, I was thinking of different movie soundtracks and, and what speak to me. And I, I think there's something amazing about how music takes a story with you that you don't even realize. And I think, you know, that's, that's, I think what makes life interesting. If we can imagine as, as if our lives is a musical soundtrack as well, right? Well, we're the actor, but what's the music playing? inside like imagine if we thought of our lives as a movie you ever have that moment when you were a kid i remember when i was a kid and i came out of a movie and i was like you know it was like a before i was like a teenager right between that time and come out of a movie and all of a sudden i feel the music was playing in my life and every scene seemed as dramatic 
and interesting and pregnant with possibility as mm -hmm. something that I'd seen on the screen. And I think that's the beauty of it. Um, and I love that. And I, I, I was thinking, you know, one of my favorite movie composers is Terrence Blanchard. Mm -hmm. He's just, just, he's, his music is so like, he, he uses like a little jazz, but it's got like some classical, it's just very elegant, but it never overpowers. You know, it's like, he's like a good accompanist. And, and I think music that kind of like enhances and helps kind of create where the words become the music, but the music supports that is, is really wonderful. Indeed, indeed. That was Star Wars for me. Like how you said you walk out the theater and you got this drama music going on. That was Star Wars for me. Dun, 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 dun. It's amazing. It's like amazing how that stays with you. You know, and then the other thing is 40 years later, it's just like, <laughs> right i mean you just hear the sound it's soundtrack and then i think the other thing is fun is like if you ever notice that sometimes songs will play in your head and sometimes they're also like a little weather map of what's going on for you internally like wait why'd that song come in or no i i hadn't thought about that song in a long while wait what what's that connecting to right right you're right your background did you go to school for music and for therapy? Did you do one and then the other? Tell me, how did you fall into this yeah. career path? So the funny thing is, um, I went to school and I studied psychology and believe it or not, biology, because I didn't know what I wanted to do. Right. I was a terrible biology major, so that wasn't going to go anywhere. But while I was there, I had always taken classical piano when I was in high school and before. And then in college, I did more jazz. But I was a terrible improviser. I was way too, you know, uh, I wasn't able to think on my feet as fast. But one of the things that I'm always grateful to my teacher, his name was Andy Jaffe, um, is he taught me how to really listen. And, and how when you really can see the beauty of how things are constructed. And so I, I realized years later that he taught me how to be a therapist, man. Like I, I would, and, and this was the time when we used to have tape recorders. I used to tape record our lessons because he could like listen to a song and say, okay. And he would tell you which chords were coming along and he could even replay what John Coltrane was playing or McCoy Tyner or you name it. And he'd just go for it. And I was like, how does he zero in so quickly and then vary it? And then I didn't realize this, this was training and being a therapist. How do you really listen and take in fully what a person is saying and then figure out, wait, oh, I know what chords they're playing. They're mm -hmm. playing this. Oh, that's an interesting color tone that they're putting in. I didn't realize it. It's not just a G. It's a G7 with a flat 13, flat nine. Like that's <laughs> interesting, right? And and then you all of a sudden you think of all these different things and they're getting confused about it because they're like, this doesn't make any sense. And you're like, no, this is a beautiful chord. Let's like, like let's, let me tell you where this chord comes from. So I never thought that this musical background would help me in any way in that sphere. And I certainly didn't think it was something that I was good at. I remember even as a kid, when I was at college, this guy, Andy, could tell that, you know, I was, I was a decent musician, but he could tell that I wasn't as confident. But I was in this like big brother program where I worked with a little, a little boy and, you know, met with him weekly. And I remember him seeing me with the kid and him giving me a look like, man, that guy knows how to improvise with being with that kid. 
And I could see a sort of respect that he felt because he was a really sharp guy. And I was like, huh. And and because this guy could improvise on anything. So the fact that he thought I can improvise with a kid, I was like, huh. So it took me a while to put that together, which is actually what's so funny is that the book that I wrote for therapists is it turns out it's called Therapeutic Improvisation. So it's all about like learning, learning how to put these pieces together as a therapist so that we can help our clients read the changes and how we can make therapy an art again by looking at how we're built, how we're structured neurologic, like neurobiologically. Mm -hmm. um, but I bring in art, music and literature and jazz. And, you know, I start the chapter, you'd love this, Lou. I start the chapter, the first chapter with Charles Mingus <laughs> talking about, uh, you know, the reason my music keeps changing is because I'm changing all the time. And then I, I pivot to Fred Rogers, you know, Mr. Rogers neighborhood who said, mm -hmm. yeah, I think, I think my goal in teaching kids is to help them with the modulations of life mm. because it's so, so difficult sometimes to change from one key to the other. And then I, I also riff on David Bowie who said, you know, what do we got to do? Turn and face the, the strange. The changes are the hardest thing. And we all are dealing with changes all the time. And especially now with, you know, in this, this pandemic and everything beyond changes are coming at us faster than ever. And that was going to be the next thing that I was going to open up about the book. I love how you segue. The book, what inspired you to make this book? You know, I always felt like what we do as therapists is, is such a, an art form. And I went to this, the psychotherapy networker conference and they were giving Irvin Yalom, this master clinician that we all love, mm -hmm. this lifetime achievement award for his amazing work. You know, if, for those of you who don't know Irvin Yalom, he's he's written not only about group therapy, but he's written about the process of therapy almost. And his case studies read like short stories. They're so heartfelt and philosophical and beautiful. And he really discloses a lot about himself. And I asked him a question at, at, at one of these conferences. And I said, you know, I think one of the things that you taught us is, is how to be artists as therapists. And I think you've actually taught us all how to be jazz musicians by learning how to lean into the dissonances. And he responded in a way that really stunned me. He said, no, I'm not an artist. I'm not a painter or a writer or anything like that. I love artists. And uh, happily, the, the moderator, uh, Sue Johnson, kind of, pushed back with him and said, no, I think, I think this, this guy has a point. And I, I subsequently contacted uh, Yalom and wanted to check in to see if he got my point. And he said, I did. And I really appreciate it. And I thought, you know, if we, if we don't see ourselves as artists and even a person who is really an artist as a therapist doesn't see it, then we need to write about this. We, we need to, we need to talk about this as a profession. <laughs> And I thought, well, this would be fun to, to, to write something that, that really, um, really showcases how wonderful our work is. Because aren't there days, Blue, when you're working where it feels like you're just, you're just kind of almost like conducting an, a symphony uh, or, or like leading a band that you're like, ooh, yeah, this is, this is going nicely. Let's keep this, like, I, I like this groove. Let's, let's, you know, and, and, and sometimes you're like, or sometimes you're feeling like you're watching these dramatic moments that you are helping to almost, you know, subtly facilitate 
as if you're helping this person get into their role more fully. And, and you stand back and like, like, you know, like some of the great conductors, they not only were like waving their baton, but you see the joy and the enthusiasm of appreciating the virtuosity of the musicians that are playing with them. And I think there's so much that those of us that work in clinical practice, that's, that's what we love about this work. And I just wanted to give therapists another way of kind of saying, this is who we are. This is what we do. It kind of reminded me, you, you remember that um, great meme where uh, Barack Obama was on the basketball court with uh, Joe Biden and Joe Biden, they pass him a ball and he just downs a three-pointer. And then he's like, that's what I do. <laughs> and I just think that's what we do. Mm -hmm. This is exactly what we do. And we should celebrate that. Mm -hmm. And the reason that we should celebrate it is also because we are helping others live more artfully mm -hmm. and find their voice and deepen their voice. And I mean, what greater gift could, could there be? So I'm, I'm somewhat passionate about it, as you can tell. <laughs> and rightfully so, rightfully so. Indeed. How um, can people acquire this book? Or how would they go about buying it? Yeah, so I mean, it's going to be out in May. May 17th is the release. And... Oh, that's my sister's birthday. That's a wonderful day to have it. Oh, see, there you go. It's a good day. I'm very excited about it. And it's it's right now available on, you know, everywhere. It's on Amazon. You can order a pre-order and it'll be in Barnes and Noble and places like that. So it's called Therapeutic Improvisation, uh, How to Stop Winging It and Own It as a Therapist. Mm. Mm. And it's really interesting because it's in Norton's Interpersonal Neurobiology series. So I bring in some, you know, very accessible, very interesting, like how we are built. We are built in a right brain, left brain way. And we have this artistic side and the scientific side that are constantly trying to mix it up together. And sometimes they're fighting. But when they work together, man, they bring out something so much bigger than the sum of the parts. And so I kind of weave back and forth how the science of this also informs why and how we can be more artistic. And I do talk about, you know how you said cinematic. A lot of my case examples are very cinematically laid out. And I also, I throw a lot of film references as if they were clinical scenes. So I, I put in films with um, Robin Williams and Matt Damon and um, Jennifer Lawrence and Robert De Niro and, um, you know, just, just a bunch of different people to showcase how we see this in art as in life. If, as we sum it up, what would be some light, some words you would like to leave the listening audience? Fun, get it? Listening, music? <laughs> <laughs> with today <laughs> yeah I, I i i think one of the things that's important is to to cultivate this kind of creativity and remember this childlike magic that we all have access to mm -hmm. and to remember that's where it starts wonder is where it starts curiosity is where it starts and we can allow ourselves to get to know that. And then the logic and, you know, the more adult sides of us that have grown up and become responsible, 
We use those to shape it, but we got to bring them together. We got to have respect for both sides. And when they're working hand in hand, that's when the third is created. I was talking on another podcast interview about how in music, we know what a chord is by the third. Mm-hmm. That really determines whether it's major or minor or anything else. And so it's interesting. We're built in this with these two facets, this logic and this emotion, like square in a circle. (laughs) But when somehow we find a way of uniting them, that's what makes music beautiful is because you unite the analytics of figuring out, you know, notes in time and space, but you do it in an expressive way. When you bring those together, you create a third. And that third is what is divine. And that's what, what I think we're all after. And I think if we look at that as a model of mental health, we won't get too tripped up on problems or diagnoses, which are important, but we'll go beyond that, which is how do we find meaning and purpose and connection and joy and fulfillment? All of that will encompasses those things that even include the problems. Mm -hmm. one last question how would you define success as a musician and if that's like the key thing that (laughs) you help your clients with you don't want to give away the secret i respect that yeah i think i think you know i think the success as a musician just as success um as a therapist is Mm -hmm. helping to tap into something that moves somebody, that touches them, that opens them up to something they didn't realize was inside of them. And the greatest artists help the audience remember that they are participating in the art as well. Well, Thank you, Dr. Michael Michael Alcee. Once again, tell them about your book and tell them about your practice, where to find you. There's any other place you want to mention other than your very beautiful website. Yeah, please, please check things out on the website. And then I also do a psychology today blog called live life creatively, um, mm-hmm. which has a whole bunch of different posts on a lot of these topics that you hear me riffing on with blue. Um, my book is out there therapeutic improvisation. Um, and uh, yeah, my website is out there. There it is. Michael Alsi tells me a little bit more about how I work the clients that I like to work with. I also love training early career clinicians, new clinicians who want to find their voice. So I feel like teaching therapy is a lot like teaching music. So uh, lots of really cool stuff. I love hearing from folks. If you have questions for me, just feel free to email me. And also I have a TEDx talk on introverts, by the way. That's a fun place too, which you'll find on my website. So there's good stuff in there. Indeed, it's a very, very wonderful site. And like you said, there is good stuff on there. Thank you for your presentation, Dr. Michael Alsi. Please look for his book on May 17th. That's Felicia Henry, Felicia Blue Henry's birthday. So you know what I'm saying? Yes. You buy yourself a copy and get her a copy too. (laughs) (laughs) That'd be a good birthday present for her as she loves music as well. And um, thank you for your presence. And thank you for those that have pushed play on your favorite way to listen to or watch podcasts. And that's more than therapy. Those that have not, please, if you find it in your heart, subscribe to podcasts of more than therapy by any which way you push play to listen to or watch your favorites. 
Be well, be great.